I was growing up, we lived in a neighborhood north of Atlanta. We had a big community pool, and it backed up to the woods right on the county line. On the far side of the woods was a very, about about five, six acre lake. Us kids, just growing up down there, we'd go up there, throw a cane pole in, and catch a few fish. Well, it was a lot of fun, but it became like every summer, you know, the lake would change a little bit. We'd grow a little older, but we'd go and fish. We would dig for worms. We'd catch, you know, little frogs. Right. Just about whatever. And my brother, again, was a big influence on that because, you know, at first when I was real little, I had to go with him. (laughs) Yeah, right. You know, and... I had an older brother, too. Oh, my brother thought it was great. You know, like, hey, look, is that a woodpecker? I'd look up and he'd push me in the lake. Oh, stupid things. You know how brothers are. Yeah, this is how you catch fish. No, that's not how you catch fish. Right. But the fun part was is it was so easy. We would just go up to the lake, two or three of us. We'd throw our lines in. It had a couple of houses at the far end, and we fished along the overgrown dam area. It was, um, And it was really cool because you know, we could go up there and fish for a couple of hours, run back down, swim. But as we grew and got a little older, I'm doing other types of fishing, but going up to the lake, trying out your latest popper, your latest rattle trap, whatever. And there was nothing to my knowledge, really big in that lake. It was right. just full of brim. You'd catch them and look at them and like, all right, that's great. You know, let them go. Yeah, that's that was pretty much it. That's, yeah. That's how you start fishing. Yeah. That's how a lot of us started fishing. Welcome into Southeastern Fly. This is David Perry, and we're, you're listening to the Angler's Influence. And today we're, we've traveled to Knoxville, Tennessee, one of my old haunts. I actually spent a lot of time right around this area, uh, along this this road out here that we're on. And we're talking to Mark Brown from Choda, a company based here in the southeast, South Eastern Fly. We like to touch on Southeastern companies and people and, and, and learn a little bit more about the area. And uh, Mark and I have been, we've, gosh, we've probably been sitting here talking for an hour, you think? Maybe yep. even longer than that. About all kinds of stuff. About kayaks and and mountains and rivers and people and, and, and business and just all kinds of really neat stuff. So I think you're going to find this this episode very interesting because it gives a little bit different perspective. And you're, for you uh, seasoned paddlers out there who are now fly fishing, uh, we're going to have a little bit of little bit of something for you to listen to too, which is super interesting. And just so you know, Mark, so before we go, you're, you're an old paddler. And I say old, I don't mean old. Uh, I'm an old paddler. <laughs> yeah. True story, when we were living here in, in Knoxville, we lived right across the, the hill in Carnes over there. I got the bright idea that I was going to go whitewater kayaking. And I went downtown to one of, one of the outdoor stores, and they said, hey, we'll just pay 20 bucks and come out. Meet, meet, meet us at the lake. We're going to do one of those classes for for whitewater kayaking. And I thought, why would we go to the lake to do whitewater kayaking? Because the Ocoee is just down the street. Anyway, so it was this nice young young girl, and and she was super pleasant, and she said, "Yeah, just just pay me the twenty bucks, and I'll be the one teaching." I was like, "Cool, all right, I already know you. I've I've known you for five minutes. You seem nice. I still don't understand why we're going to the lake, but that's beside the point. Maybe we're just all going to meet there, and we're going to get in a bus, and we're going to ride down the Okoe, and of course, we're going to start at the top and go all the way to the bottom. And by the end of the day, I'm going to be I'm going to know how to whitewater kayak. That wasn't exactly what happened. What happened was is I met her and about 12 other people at the lake and they had all these kayaks and they put you in the skirt thing you know so everybody's walking around with that black floppy skirt thing on and i don't i'm sure it's got a name no that's it it's just called a skirt it's a skirt okay see see how good she taught (laughs) uh but 
So we go out to the lake, and she pushes us out there, and we all paddle around a little bit. She says, I'm going to teach you how to roll. And I said, okay. She said, but the first thing I'm going to do is just flip you upside down. You pull this little handle, and it's going to shoot you out the bottom, and then you're going to come up. All right, so when are we getting in the bus to go to the Ocoee? Because it's starting to get dark now. I mean, there's a lot of mountains around that area, and I knew that it, we didn't have much time. So we, she flips me over, and I remembered, pull this little piece. Ripcord. Ripcord, yeah. It was very much a ripcord, very much like parachuting, I assume, except it accelerated me out of the kayak, and I wasn't in quite deep enough water, and <laughs> probably me trying to struggle because I kind of waited just a minute before I decided to pull the ripcord. Yep. So I was out of breath. Anyway, I pull the ripcord. It shoots me out. I get some mud in my hair. And I come back up to the top, and she just thought that was fantastic. And everybody had done it. And then I assumed, all right, we're getting in the bus now. I haven't seen the bus, but <laughs> apparently it's coming. Because if you're, if you're at a river in East Tennessee, there are all these buses running back and forth with all these rafts and stuff. And I just assumed that kayaking would be the same thing. Anyway, she she got us back in our kayaks, and she we did the whole pull the ripcord and jettison yourself out several times. And then we started to roll. What she forgot to tell me when we were in the store was what you really need to do above all else is get some nose plug things that push your nose together and yeah, you talk like kind of this. Important. Well, she didn't say anything about that. And I noticed that a couple people had those, but most of us didn't. Living over here in Knoxville at that time, when you first move here, we moved from Chattanooga to, to Knoxville. When we first moved here, all the plants must be totally different because for about the first year, all I did was go back and forth to the doctor trying to get my runny nose and my sore throat oh, yeah. taken care of. And it was just about the time that I got it straightened out that I took this kayak class. So I take this kayak class and it's to the point now where it's, okay, it's time to roll. I thought nothing about having, what do they call the nose plugs? Are they nose plugs? Is They're that what they call just nose plugs. See how good I am? <laughs> she was a great teacher. So she 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 gets us out there and she says, okay, I'm going to turn you over and then you hold your paddle back behind you like this and then you kind of take your hips and you do a little some kind of stroke. I don't remember what it was. It was a probably if I had... Sweep stroke. A sweep stroke and that's exactly what it was like. And then you kind of twist your hips a little bit somehow or another, which I probably couldn't do today because I'm a little older. And then lo and behold, you're going to pop right up. But if that doesn't work, pull the ripcord. So I said, okay, I got all this. I'm listening to her, and I watch almost everybody else do it. And there were some people out there that it took them a while to get it, you know, to get. And some people had to jettison out by pulling the ripcord. And some, some, it seemed like it was the smaller people that were able to flip themselves back over the first time. As we're waiting on the bus that to get there that never came, <laughs> after about six or seven times, I was finally get, able to get myself pulled over, uh, pulled back up. And, and not have to pull the ripcord, but pulling that ripcord all those times and getting shot out of the shot out of the kayak, which is amazing that you come out of that thing as fast as you do. I mean, it's not like a rocket coming out of there, but it does kind of push you out. It doesn't push you out. You push the boat away. That's yeah. what people never. Is that what it is? There's a in that whole rolling thing. Uh huh. One thing people don't understand: as soon as you pull your legs back or pull the skirt, yeah, you actually are you start pushing yourself out. And I have seen boats come a foot off the water. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, well, and people say, I'll get stuck. I'm looking like, oh, no, you're too big to get stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. That's the way I was. I was too big to get stuck, apparently. I got pretty good at, at, at pulling ripcord and jettisoning myself <laughs> out of there. And finally, finally, I figured out 
you know, how to move my hips and how to do the sweep stroke and how to do all that stuff to get myself to pop back up. And I was super happy when I did. Now, the bus never showed up. <laughs> Apparently, I'd signed up for a rolling class, which she felt was very important if we were going to go do some whitewater somewhere, which I assume would have been some class one or two at the most. But after that, at about the same time, I took up fly fishing. And fly fishing just won out mainly the main reason I think it won out was two two things. My buddy Pat across the street, of course, he played a big part in it. He was one of my influences. But the other thing was it messed my sinuses up so bad because she never said, get the nose plugs. And I would have paid the $6 or whatever it was for the nose plugs, but she never told me that. So for about a month, month, month and a half, it was just more trips to the doctor. It just opened up my sinuses or something. And it was absolutely awful. Yeah, but, yeah. But um, in the end, I ended up being in fly fishing, so I, I probably ended up where I was supposed to be, you know? <laughs> well, at least you tried. I did. Yeah. I did, and I felt pretty good about it. So back to fly fishing. I don't mm-hmm. want to get too far off of that. I'm, I'm sorry about the long ramble. That's but right. So you started fishing and, and, and with your brother uh, in North Atlanta. Uh, or north of Atlanta, what town were you? Were you did y'all live in? We lived in a town called Doraville. Okay. And quarter, well, maybe half mile from the house was the line between DeKalb County and uh, Gwinnett County. Right. Or we all said back then Gwinnett County because nothing other but farm. And by the time late '80s came around, mid to late '80s, we had grown. The city had grown over us. Right. It was. It was really interesting. I mean, it just. It's still there but it is part of Atlanta. The funny part is I have a friend who uh, has lived there all her life, and she runs food tours down the main strip there, Beaverton Highway. It is one of the most diverse areas in the country for Asians. Oh. Anthony Bourdain even went there and did a tour. Really? And he did a whole show based on Beaverton Highway. Huh. And uh, right before I left, we got in the habit of going from a restaurant we couldn't, nobody spoke English in. We right. would eat whatever they brought us, and the next week we'd go to the next one. Oh, that's and a that's great how, idea. Oh, yeah. And yeah. That's how, how I really expanded what I like to eat. So as you're growing up down there, tell me about uh, who would you say what your first influence would be as far as, as fly fishing goes? Well, uh, you know, that's funny. Um, none of us really fly fished. I, I moved up here to work for Dagger Kayak. And then through that, I got to know Frank, the original owner of Choda. Even then, I still paddled. I didn't fly fish. I got to do all these shows. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing a lot of paddling shows because we did that back. And then one day, I called my brother, and I was kind of like, hey, look, you know, I got to learn to do this. And uh, he goes, it's, it's not hard. You know how to fish. I go, well, yeah. He goes, you know water. I go, yeah. He goes, we'll just, we'll meet up, and we'll go. And that's what we did. We actually met up down in uh, Tacoa, Georgia, up in, on the Noon Tootla. Uh huh. Because I want, I said no, I don't want to fish Tacoa or the Hooch, right? You know, because I wanted mountain streams, and it was like this is how you do it, you know. And by that time, I think he had been doing it about fifteen years. And this is your brother. This is my brother, my older okay. brother. He's uh, always been a big hunter. We've always fished. Sometime it's probably been longer ago than that. He switched to fly fishing. I was just too busy kayaking. But uh, when I first went in his garage, and I was serious about it, he had like eight fly rods hanging up. You know, and, and their little cases, and under it, he had the reel for it. I go, why do you need eight rods? All you need is one to go fish. And he's like, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. I now have seven rods and a Tenkara rod, which I've never used. I feel bad. <laughs> it was given to me. Uh, but that was it. I mean, he, he kind of did that. But then just being here in East Tennessee and, of course, being my job, people would go, hey, you want to go fly fish? I'm like, yeah, I'm not very good. That's okay. And, you know, just a person here, a person there. Besides my brother, there wasn't one person because once I got proficient, right. I started going on my own all the time. Right. I think that's one of the drawbacks to being being a dude, 
you know, and I just, I'd go and I would be very intent on, okay, I can catch fish on, you know, stimulator. Mm-hmm. I, well, let's try a stimulator with a dropper. Right. So I catch, the rule is I go out and catch a fish. Then I try something new. You know, that's a good way to approach it. I'm terrible, terrible about putting something on. Oh. Same thing over oh. and over. I mean, if I'm fishing on my own and then not changing anything, maybe the depth a little bit. But yep. that's going to be about it for me. Depending on what I'm doing, a friend of mine says either you're just super intense or you're so laid back that it doesn't seem like you really care after you <laughs> catch a fish. Some days we go fishing and you catch 40 or 50. And then some days we go and you catch one and then you row the rest of the day. There's no rhyme or reason, but that's a good rule that you've got there of try something a little different. Well, that goes back to one of my other influences. Um, I got really lucky in kayaking. My first kayak instructor, Malcolm, was a Canadian, and I don't hold it against him, but he was a neat guy. A. A, yeah. (laughs) Um, But I'd already had my boat for a few months and had been out on my own and on the Metro Chattahoochee. Uh And... um, Really had a blast just learning myself. Well, I took the class, and I was a little bit ahead of everybody because I'd done that. So anything he did, I followed him. Uh-huh. And at the end of the day, he's like, hey, won't you come out and paddle with us? But as we went along, I noticed whenever we were on big water, when we started paddling big water together, we'd be between a couple of class four rapids or something like that on a hard river running these little class threes and He'd be eddy hopping, which is jumping from one side of the river to the other or doing something. I'm like, uh, you okay there? Yeah, I'm practicing. <laughs> what are you practicing? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to practice my paddling. And he looked at me and he's like, I tell you all the time, practice. I go, when do you practice? Now's a good time. When he said that was only my second time running the section four of the Chatuga, and that is big water. I mean, I was still scared to death. I right. mean, it's you're looking at these four class four rapids or class five rapids back to back and this is about a mile above that and he's like oh just practice takes too nervous but practice um you know whenever you go out practice try something new try to run it different especially if you're running a river that you've run a hundred times before you know right. he says one you shouldn't do that but yeah do so if, if, I, if i'm fishing and and take and taking what you're talking about into practice and, and practice is big i mean it really is try something different try different lines uh, try different. If you, we were talking earlier about the Nashville class that I was doing when my daughter texted me, but we talk about practice there, and it's not necessarily just practicing casting. Although I think people should practice casting. Leave a rod rigged up in your garage. Take everything out of the way so that it makes it easy to walk out in the yard and just for five minutes, even if it's five minutes a day, even if it's ten minutes a day, even if it's once every other you know, 10 minutes every other day, something like that. If you just practice your casting, same thing on the river that you're talking about. Although you're talking about paddling it, you still need to practice the different things, the different types of water that's within where you're waiting, especially up here in the Smokies. It's really, you have a opportunity for many, many different types of water. If you pick a section of a river that you fish once or twice a week, let's say, and you fish that same section, it's very easy to get into that routine of I'm just going to fish it and I'm going to get in the truck and I'm going to drive back home. Adding something like you're talking about, you're talking about, you're approaching it from a kayak stance of different, doing different techniques and different types of strokes and all that. But if you think about it, this is very similar to what you're talking about of trying different things, practicing different things. So once you learn a certain body of water, you can apply it to others. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's, we are creatures of habit. So for the first two years, I fished Tremont. 
Right. I fished Tremont. We all did. A certain section. And it was a long section, but a certain section. And then I don't know what sparked it, but I remembered that. I remember try something new. So I'm trying to think there's two weeks there that I could use any fly except a beadhead pheasant tail and a yellow stimulator. I had, to, I had to use other flies because that's all I used all the time. Right. So I got rid of them. Exactly. And I said, I'm going to try these. And lo and behold, after a couple of times, I started catching fish like I used to. I will say, if you're going to practice anything on the river, the first most important thing to do is catch a fish. Go catch a fish. Absolutely. Once you do that, the stress is off. It, it's just hard. You go out and you want to try something new, but you want to catch a fish. There's a certain amount of pressure that comes with saying, I'm going to go fishing for a little bit. And it doesn't matter who you tell that to. You could tell it to your wife, your kids, your neighbor. It could be the mailman. It doesn't matter if you say, "I'm, I'm, where you? I'm going fishing for a little bit." The very next time they see you, if it's your wife, as soon as you get home, usually or, or shortly thereafter. If it's the mailman, it mailman, it may be that day, the next day, or two weeks from then. The first thing that that mail person is going to say is, "How'd you do fishing the other day?" Yep. And you're going to have to say something. And you don't want to be the one that goes, yeah, I got skunked, although we've all been skunked. Every one of us has <laughs> m- many times, especially when you first start out. And But you have to answer that question. Oh, yeah, yeah. And So and getting that one fish out of the way. is Getting a fish out of the way uh, takes the pressure off. And then figure out, what do I know? It's like I never used the bow and arrow cast in those two years. Still don't use it a whole lot. But a couple of years ago, I said, okay, I don't use it a whole lot. Why not? And I said, let's just try. I did it some, and I'm like, yeah, I had good success. And then I went and watched somebody do it. Right. Watched a video. I'm like, yeah. okay, try this, try that, try this. So, yeah, practicing when you go out, there's always time to do that, and it's the only way to get better. Casting under you know, heavy brush. One of the things is I'd been fishing up there, I guess, four or five years, and Tremont, Road Prong, all these places, pull and drop, I was proficient in <laughs> catching fish. But Little River, some of the, like uh, Ocona Lufty, have a lot of long slicks with fish in them. And they're just as spooky, but they can see you. Working on casting to that type of water for me was real challenging because it's like, I know I'm not going to catch anything for a while. And part of that was just landing your cast softer, you know, making longer casts. Uh, the other part of the what I really learned kayaking is I could kayak class five whitewater in my kayak if I did really well on, you know, really big rivers. However, there's a lot of times I couldn't go. I'd have to go to the Nantahala with my friends or my wife. She paddled back then. It's kind of boring. So Malcolm paddled up to me one day in a canoe. And so I look canoe. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, well, I paddled this a hundred times in a kayak. I think next time you should do it in a canoe. And he paddles off. And I'm like, hey, you know, he's right. Dang, I hate that when somebody so, does that to me. Yeah. <laughs> but that, what it was is if you do something enough, you need to do something. What, what's making it challenging? You know, what are you learning? And that was it. So um, I went from my normal ride to a really short ride, which I don't suggest for the mountains, but everybody right. said that's what you had to have. I just <laughs> tried it, and I, but I figured out the difference between the two right. and where one was more appropriate than the other. That was also when I started uh, trying to fish for smallmouth. Totally different ball game. Right. And I was out there one day. I had a big stealth bomber one, and I'm false casting the crud out of this thing, you know, a hundred times. And the guy's looking at me says, comes up and he says, hey, you know, that's really nice, but if you get a little closer and make three casts, you know, if you can hit the bank in three casts, stand that far away. I'm like, well, I'll spook the fish. He goes, these aren't trout. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't have to land it easy. Yeah, it's almost better to plop it in, their, in front of their face. And, it really is. And aggravate them just a little um, bit. And it's funny because in that kayaking, I got, I got two books. One I was given was Kayak by William Neely, who was a cartoonist. The book is funny. It has good basic information, but what really struck me is he drew water. Not just water, but he drew it in these forms that told you what the water was doing. Like how the depression before a wave, you know, how it sinks. 
compared to the rest of the river. Mm-hmm. And if you look at white water and you really look at it, a, a nice wave on a wave train, it sinks really deep on that first trough and then it rises up. And then as it goes down to the next one, it doesn't sink as much. And it kind of showed where the energy was and how the water was reacting. And that helped me out a whole lot because people kept saying, well, you know where the eddy is. And I knew, but I didn't know how differently they could form. You know, some form really violently. You you pull your boat into it and it spits you right out. Right, right. More than likely flips you over. But then there was another book of a higher type of whitewater kayaking called squirt boating. And it's where you are in a very thin fiberglass kayak and you are working in the first two inches of the boat sticks above the water. And the rest of it is in that first three inches. That's how skinny they are. But you're working with the currents. I mean, in that book was the first extremely detailed scientific layout of water I'd ever seen. Where the water is as far as what's moving faster as you go toward the core of a, of a run. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's moving faster, where it's moving a little slower. Why, how the interface with the eddies works. Um, and if you look at a, a run and there's a big rock down there, you go, well, you know, water's hitting the rock and going around it. There's a lot more happening there. The whole buffer right in front of that rock. Yes. And how's that rock shape? And, they, and in the book, they got into it because if there's a big boulder and you're going down this river, you could turn the boat uh, horizontal and <laughs> slam into that rock and never hit it because the boat's so thin, you're hitting that cushion. And everybody thought, oh, you're going to die. So for the people that are out here listening to this and they're going, well, I thought this was a fly fishing. <laughs> and and yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm going to bring it back around, so please bear with me. As you're describing all those details, a lot of stuff's coming to mind uh, and a lot of stuff's leaving my mind at the same time. <laughs> so as I'm thinking about that, you, you were talking about the water slamming into the rock it's not hitting the rock it's really what did you say it's creating a buffer it's creating a buffer and we we tend to call that sometimes a pillow yeah the pillow and i was in in colorado last summer standing in the front of a drift boat i know that you probably find that uh, find that kind of strange <laughs> of me doing that because it doesn't seem like i weighed hardly any anymore unless it's at lunchtime i do i do tend to wait it while people are eating but as we're floating down this river and it's clear it's it has A lot of the same types of water that you just described in the past two minutes. But we came up on a a, kind of a slick, moving pretty fast, though. Uh, And there was one rock there, and it was on the right side. And I remember it by the train tracks because there was a train that was there that that had stopped. And that has nothing to do with the pillow. But anyway, we're floating to it, and I'm looking at this rock. The only thing on this slick was this rock on the right-hand side. It's probably a foot or two off of the off of the bank, and I thought I need to throw over there. So I look over there, and on that pillow, sitting right in front of that rock, was a trout about eighteen inches long. Yep, dropping the fly over there to him, and he was he his tail was barely moving. If you judge it from the w- way the water was going around that boulder there, that rock, you would have thought he would have been swimming for everything he was worth. But he was just sitting there and stroking his tail every once in a while. And I was telling my guide, slow down just a second. And he said, is there a fish on that pillow? And I said, yeah. He said, well, all right, let me move you there and cast to it. But that fish barely looked like he moved his tail two times in the time that we got set up. Yeah, learning how to do that, it was funny, learning all about the water. When I first started fly fishing, it's like I'd read an article on Fly Fisherman magazine or something, how to read the water, and I'd look at it and go, well, duh, but I have this back experience. Right, right. The uh, squirt boating, as they call it, they move like fish. They had to use the water, you know, and they had to use it the best they could. You know, when a current makes an eddy, you know, you see that and you see the calm water on one side, you see the current on the other. And then that eddy line 
there's all sorts of things happening depending on the surface structure. But I've learned in the Smokies, if you cast just the other side of it up at the top, they cause these little whirlpools and it'll suck your nymph right down. And it will run that whole line of that eddy line just perfect. It's kind of crazy, but it does. It takes it all the way down. Usually about, I don't know, six inches in, you'll hit a fish or way down at the bottom. But it's that that interface of the water. I think my favorite quote, though, came from that book about water. It's like, uh, learn to work with water, treat it right, because it doesn't know the difference between you, driftwood, plastic, <laughs> bone, and blood. Right. So what was the name of the book? Uh, two books. Two. Kayak by William Neely. Okay, and it had some some reading the water, it, some things that would help me read the water if yeah, I wanted to read something. And it, this is funny. He's a cartoonist. It's in cartoon form, but it makes complete sense and it's a very visual that would be way to look kind of at it visual yeah uh the other one is a little more technical and but they have a couple sections it's called the squirt book the it's squirt like, book. yeah okay and they went a little more detailed the guy who wrote that was more of an engineer yeah it's just neat to see how water moves also learn that when the water's up it moves different mm-hmm. than when it's down you know everybody knows that eddie sits there and it swirls around clockwise or whatever and all that when it gets really big and you're floating down the river and you're paddling something in flood stage it's always nice to whip into an eddy and have the front of your boat suck straight down because it's going vertical now yeah right it's right, not going exactly. horizontal anymore. yes you are there's there's a couple of places that we fish tailwaters one of them in particular is real can be really big and there's a spot that you come to the first real hard right hand turn the water has comes off like a small dike and right behind it's a big eddy and it's totally different getting in there on one generator versus three generators and two sluices and they're really cutting the water loose it's a totally different animal it's in the same spot that's it but after that it's totally different yeah so reading the water and especially here i I would say especially here but you know we were on a, a pretty calm tail water yesterday and i was teaching one guy and the other, the other guy that was fishing with me, he's he was he's pretty good, really already. And he's he's one of those folks that just gets intense right away. And we got a lot of folks out there that listen to this that are that way. Even on a you know a calm calm river versus a, a class whatever we have in the Smokies. I, sometimes I would consider those class two or three up there. So I'm trying to wade across them. Oh yeah. But, but it, it doesn't matter. You need to be able to read the water because you you're really reading that water, not just so that you can say that I can read the water, but to, to determine what's that presentation really going to be like and where where do I really need to throw to get it down to the fish if I'm fishing a nymph or to keep it up and keep enough just enough slack in the line to where it'll that, that dry will float through and look natural. Oh, yeah, yeah. And with nymphs, it's really cool because when I first started, you know, I'd say, well, there's a fish over there. I'll throw that nymph right there and it'll go. And my nymph would hit the water and be on the bottom at the back of the pool, mm-hmm. you know, and you think, well, I'll throw it up further. And then you start reading it and you think, if I throw it into that seam, it's going to suck it under that rock. And then even on long slicks, there's structure, you know, and you have to look for that subtle structure. I think my problem with fishing long slicks in the beginning was I was just not casting gentle enough but you know just a little ripple well that means there's a rock under there and it's not moving very fast but there's something either in front of or behind that rock something's going on that's it's it, the, the slicks i was the same way when i first started about the slicks i could never catch any fish out of the slicks it's interesting because the 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 last recording that i did was with uh with ronnie howard grumpy yeah, yeah. grumpy and we talked about fishing a slick because he likes to, to do the, the Cherokee National Forest. He likes to fish up there. So I, I picked out a slick that I had fished in my mind already. Uh, it was still in my mind. Uh, I had fished it earlier 
probably my second year fly fishing when I really started getting serious about it. I fished this slick, so I just described it to him, and we talked about it. And the number one thing that I learned about fishing these slicks is you don't have to get in it. You yep. know, you don't have to stand in the water to cast it. It took, seemed like it took me a long time to figure out that just because I'm fly fishing and I've got waders on doesn't necessarily mean I have to use them every time that I make a cast. I don't have to take a step. And every time I make a cast doesn't necessarily mean I have to be in the water. Exactly. And that once I figured that out, the slicks became instantly better marginally but better <laughs> and then i did the same thing you start looking for the rocks start looking for you know maybe there's a little ledge in there that maybe i just didn't see it yeah my two biggest browns to date um one came out of the upper nanahala one out of the uh little river and they're not huge by any you know 13 14 inches came about a year after i started learning how to fish those things i fished with a buddy one day and i just it was magical i said yeah you see that little riffle there i said you know there's probably a fish back there i said but stand back here you know at the tail of the pool stand back a little further than you would on a pool and drop section i said because he's probably looking upstream but as soon as you hit that water he's gone yep you know and everybody knows that but I started backing up a little more, a little gentle cast. I said, watch this. So just watch how I cast it. It landed, and it got two inches past that riffle. It hit. I had this nice brown. And almost the same thing the second time. I was looking at it, and I told my brother, I said, see that riffle? I said, you know, hit that thing. I said, there's a fish in there. He goes, oh, no, you can hit that. And I did, and I pulled out this beautiful fish. And I'm like, get the net, get the net. And he's standing there going, oh, that's a beautiful fish. Look at that. Can I find my net? I got a net here. <laughs> And soon as I got it to the edge of the river, and we're looking, it was beautiful. It popped off. I love you, brother. <laughs> I'm going to give your grandkids lots of Mountain Dew. There you go. That's right. Wind them up. Uh-huh. Send them home. But so your brother, you, you, met, yeah. you mentioned him early as an influence. He had, what did you say, eight, seven, eight fly rods? Well, that was then. He's gotten into competition fly fishing since then, and he has like another six. Of course. Okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. when we get into something new, even if it's just a little bit newer, we've got to have some more different gear, which is... I'm the worst. There may not be anyone worse out there than me about doing that of, all right, I'm going to get into fly fishing. I needed waders and boots. You know, sometimes you're going to go one day fishing, and then the next day you're going to go fishing too. You don't want to take those old waders with you. <laughs> so I'm going to buy two pair of waders. The boots will be fine because they're, you know, they're boots. Boots are boots. But I need a couple pair of waders, and then, you know, the next thing I know, I've got a closet full of fly rods. It just goes on and on. So, of course, he's going to have to have some new ones. So he fished, he fly fished, and then you decide after going to shows and uh, for, for Choda, yep. kind of playing both sides there of I'm, I'm, a, I'm a paddler guy, but also I'm a fly fishing guy or, or a guy selling paddling stuff and a guy selling fly fishing stuff. And you felt like you needed to, to learn how to fly fish, and, and you went to your brother. Yep. And then how how did he go about it? Where did y'all fish? You said that you went, you were in Georgia and you went to... Noontula. Noontula, okay. Yeah. See, you know, we were lucky we grew up fishing trout on the hooch in Atlanta. So I kind of knew, now this is great, you know, with corn and everything else. Oh, yeah. And then we graduated to spinners. Right. And my dad would buy us corn all day long. You buy your own dang spinners because <laughs> you're going to lose them. Yes. You know? It, well, he was right. Um, but anyways, uh, we went up there, and he just, I had been doing some on my own. But he just said, okay, you know, this is how you tie these knots. These are the knots you want to use. This is how you want, how deep you want your nymph to be. And I'm looking at him going, man, that's way too deep for this creek. <laughs> of course, he was right. And we just we just started going, and he gave me some good, and I'd call him, you know, we um, just every now and then say, okay, you know, I'm having a little trouble with this or that. And I hated it because he's in Atlanta and I'm here. And at that time I started, he had two kids still in school 
and his oldest had just had a kid. So, you know, he had a granddaughter and we just couldn't get together as much. He did that. He was really good about, yeah, this is, you know, this is how you do a roll cast. That's what we use a lot, right? You know, in the mountains, the roll cast, high sticking, you know, this, do this, do that. Watch where it's going here and there. But yeah, and then flies, he's the one who kind of narrowed it down. Just fish with these, you know, it was like a couple of atoms, different atoms, high vis, the stimulator, and then hair's ear and uh, beadhead pheasant tail. Because I go, I would go to these shows and people would, in the industry, would say, here, have a handful of flies. Boxes full of flies. But I had no clue. Start with these and just work from there. Did he say, and give me all the rest of those? Well, you know, back then he did. Yeah. <laughs> so I tied for about three or four years, and I was never very good at it. But when his youngest graduated college, I gave him a vice. So now we trade. I send him a new pair of boots every couple of years, and he sends me lots and lots oh. of flies. Because, you know, in that, those comp flies, yeah. I mean, he can he can knock those things out left and right. Yeah, yeah. So he sends me boxes of flies. It's, it's a good trade-off. It's a good deal right there. It, I think yeah. it's a very good deal for a pair of boots. Heck yeah. <laughs> All right, let's pay some bills here. Moonshine Rods, their mission is simple, to imagine, create, and distribute unique, well-built fly fishing rods at a price point that real people can afford. They craft their rods in hopes they inspire a revival. Turn to the pure, simple spirit of adventure, moments that stir the soul, strikingly designed, high performance, and built to last. Every one of their small batch rods whispers the beginning of a unique story, one that's bound to be epic. So you've got, so now you're trading flies Boots for flies, and sounds like you've got a closet full of fly rods too. So, there. do you? Is that all you have, or do you really have some more somewhere else, hoping that your wife doesn't listen to this? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I, it's this is funny. I have six or seven rods, and there's three that I use consistently. Now, this is a funny thing that really started me fly fishing. I wanted to. I thought about it, and um, pretty cheap. You know, I'll spend money on my wife and daughter, but not me. About the third fly fishing show, dealer show in Denver that I attended. We packed up the booth that day, went back to the hotel, got cleaned up. We're flying out the next morning. My boss and I go down to the Brown Hotel to eat. And uh, they have a little bar there. It's real good. We go in and eat. We come out and he's fussing with his phone or something. And I'm standing against the building and I look down and there's a really nice uh, G. Loomis fly rod tube. I open it up. It's a four weight, nine six. And it had no name. So I took it back with me called G. Loomis. Nobody ever claimed it. And I still have it. Yeah, that, that was like eight years ago, two tips ago. Yeah, I've broken it twice, I think. And But I had the rot, so then I had to buy a reel to go Absolutely, with it, yes. You know, and all that. Heck yeah. Um, but that really did start it, and I feel bad for whoever lost it. Well, whoever that is is going to listen to this thing one day and go, he's got my fly rod. He's got my fly rod. Yeah, and I'd have to buy him a new one because I'm afraid this one's ending its lifetime. <laughs> you know. I think being in the business, that's one of the things that general public doesn't understand is no matter how you take care of stuff, boots, waders, rods, reels, it all has a lifespan. It does, yes. You know, I hate it because I want my stuff to last forever. Yeah, it does. And, you know, use it. That's that's my thing is I have a lot of people say, well, I only fly fish twice a year. Right. I couldn't do that. You know, I mean, even if I only went once a month, that still wouldn't be enough almost. And it is. And I'm in a good place. My kid's, you know, in college. My wife has a lot of other interests. And likes to get me out of the house. Right. Uh, they all like to get yeah. us out of the house, I think. And I, um, blame them. I guess it was about three years ago, I decided I'm going to start fishing with other people. Because I would. I'd hike into road prong myself. I'd hike, right. Yeah, I'd hike oh, into yeah. all those places myself. And it's not really that smart. No. <laughs> In the long it's, run. It's not Disneyland over there. No, no. And I have, 
I have uh, was extra food. I have fire starter. I have all yeah. this stuff in my vest. But part of it's that. Part of it, you know, is uh, I would say networking. But I've worked a lot with uh, the Project Healing Waters folks uh-huh. and Casting for Recovery. But some of the people that run those programs I got to know, and they don't fish the Smokies as much. I'm like, well, you know, you need to fish with somebody else. So take them and, you know, help them learn that, you know, section and uh, or learn that type of fishing. And that's been a lot of fun, you know, doing that because – I have learned in the last few years, just like when I talk hiking, uh, I've learned there's a, I'll be like, oh, that's different and that works. You're teaching somebody, say, no, no, now, yeah, do it like you just did it. Right. You caught a fish, that works, let's try that. And I used to use a big old strike indicator, yarn, and now it's just the smallest thing. It's gotten to Euro-nymphing, but I haven't gotten quite into Euro-nymphing. So to me, less of a strike indicator, more of keeping those flies down, watching your line, that kind of stuff. So there's not a right or wrong way. This It's just like we had a conversation earlier about country music, yeah. you know, new and old, and is it country or is it not? So there's not necessarily a right or wrong way to fly. We all kind of get into this. At some point, you might be the dry fly purist. You might be the guy that nymphs without an indicator. You might be the guy that hates nymphing with the indicator because it's like bobber fishing. You might be the guy that fishes streamers, but only the old kind, only the old school streamers or you might be the guy that doesn't fish a streamer that's under eight inches long because you know musky don't hit that we all have times in our our pastime that we think this is the way to do it oh yeah you know and if, since i'm doing it this way this is this is my this, i'm going to adopt this way and i'm going to push this way or it's the guys you know that you pass by the bank maggot i like to call them sitting on the bank and, and i don't mean that der- as derogatory as that sounds but the dude sitting on the bank that's you know drowning a worm well I can't really fault him for anything because I'll be darned. That's exactly what I used to do. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. Or salmon eggs. If somebody's fishing salmon eggs, okay, great. Fly fisher people tend to have that snobby personality. Uh, and especially more so in the Some past. Can. Yeah. Um, I think more and more of us are realizing, no, we didn't, you know, come out of the womb casting a fly rod. No. People at shows all the time, I do a show and people, I tell them about boots, I tell them about waders, I tell them about everything. And they're just like, oh, this is great, this is great. How long have you been fly fishing? And I loved it in the beginning because it's like, oh, four years. And they just look at me like, oh, I, I grew up fly fishing. I'm like, yeah, well, I didn't. Right. <laughs> and, and, right. But, but it's almost like everybody who's an expert had to do that. You know, you had to, like, Get your fly rod at four years old. I learned so much throwing spinners and corn in the Chattahoochee at Jonesbridge Park. How to wade, where to wade, the the best places to fall in. Because <laughs> we all did that. Yes, we did. Still probably do. Yeah. I'm um, not going to admit it. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, in, in the kayak, you can bring the kayaking thing. Reading the water is a big deal. Uh, your brother taking you out is a big deal. That kind of kicks you off and you start fishing. And then the next thing you know, you're calling him up saying, hey. I've got a fly rod now, and I need to. I need some direction. And you mentioned knots. I guess I mentioned knots on every one of these episodes. I think I do. I swear I think I do. If not, I should. And that was interesting that your brother said, you know, yeah, here's the knots you need to use. Yep. He didn't say, here's a book, learn them all. <laughs> he said, here's the ones you need to use. And, you know, it varies species to species. But what I did is I have a tent stake and a pretty good, uh-huh. pretty good <laughs> thickness of some old uh, climbing rope. And I will sit there and watch that video step by step by yep. step. I think it's like Kilroy's knots. Yep, that's a and, great, yeah. that's a great and, one. And yeah. uh, I just learned because I did the fishing comp once with my brother just recently. And that was a lot of fun. But use the Davy knot. Use the Davy knot. Yeah. I'm like, nah, I got to use this because I don't know what that is. Right, <laughs> I right. I need practice, right, you know. Right. Um, and you should be able to tie them in the dark. I mean, how many oh, times have you been out there and the light be low? And the, the Smokies is a prime example yeah. of the light. It could be 7 o'clock and it doesn't get dark till 845. 
but where you are in the Smokies, it may be to where it's really tough to see. It's funny you say that. Have you ever had that feeling up on Tremont? You do that and uh, you finish because you just can't see. Yeah. You drive out and then when you come down into Townsend and it's like it's not even dark yet. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why I said that because yeah. I've been there and yeah. done that. Yeah. There's several in the, and they, what I use for bass quite often. Uh, is not the same that I use for trout. Right. You know, and it takes a little, but I'll sit there with that piece of rope, that tent stake with the eye on it, and I'll tie it and tie it and tie it until, like you say, it becomes secondhand. Yeah. I remember my dad, I am on the dyslexic level, I'm at the top. Uh-huh. It doesn't get any worse. <laughs> okay. And I uh, always had trouble learning stuff. My dad would tie uh, like those, uh, he'd tie a swivel on for me. So don't worry about it, just here. You know, he made it as easy as he could. And we'd go fishing for trout. That was because I told you, me and my brother would go out and wade everywhere. My dad would pick a spot and stand there and fish. I think he was just happy to be out. You know, my brother and I were all for the adventure. You think he was happy for, to catch that one fish that we were talking about? I think he's happy if he didn't catch a fish. Really? Oh, so. That could be a um, great place to be. You know, he took me and my brother all over North Georgia. Cooper's Creek, Rock Creek, uh, Moccasin Creek. Uh, we had a pop-up camper. You know, we spent tons of time camping. As I got a little older, he and I got into hiking, and we hiked all over the Appalachian Mountains. We had a blast. I went to a private school, and they did a hike every year. So in seventh grade, we did this hike. And the first year was fun and all. The next year, I was more into hiking and more comfortable. So I was with the cool kids up front, and my dad was the last person into camp. He always brought up the rear. He did that for 12 years. And the last two, I stayed in the back with him. Me and my cool buddies get up in the morning, eat breakfast. Uh, 10, 11 o'clock, we'd done that five miles. We'd be in camp, setting it up, getting firewood and all that. The last two years, my dad and I would get up and leave right behind him. We'd be in the back with the slower kids. We'd take an hour break for lunch at noon, like unroll our bedrolls, you know, oh, maybe nice. cook something. And then roll everything up, get to camp just before dark, cook dinner. And his thing was, you know, we're out here. Why run? You know, take your time. Look around. See what you see. He always saw the bear. He always saw the deer. He always saw the animal. And us loud kids up front didn't. And he was big on, we'd get to a campsite, and there'd be a little pile of trash, you know, on the AT or something. And he'd be like, all right, each one of y'all take a piece of trash. Yeah. Well, you didn't put it there. Yeah, I know, but you're taking it out. That was huge. How many times have you been to the river? And I guess and we, we fished public tailwaters, and, and you probably don't do that as much as what I what I do. Oh, I used to have to clinch a good bit. Well, yeah, yeah. so the clinch is a yeah. prime example. So how many times have you got out of the truck and somebody else get out of their vehicle at the same time, and you get ready, they're already ready, and you go down to the river and they're half a mile away and it's been about 15 minutes and you look down through there and think, wow, they missed some great fishing. Number one, to get down to where they oh, are. Yeah. That's, that's number one. Let's, let's call it number one. Yeah. But number two, they spooked every otter every, and I'm not a huge <laughs> lover of otters, but you know what I mean? Raccoons and, and all the animal deer, they spooked every one of those and didn't even get that part of the experience at all. But yet they're fishing their favorite hole and they might, they might stand there all day and that's okay. They also could have fished their way to it and had just a super pleasant day to be out there and been able to fish different types of water. And, and oh yeah, it's just the experience. It sounds like your dad taught you to experience things and more than fly fishing. You know, you get into hiking as well, and that's a big deal. And and having somebody there to show you that kind of thing—that's that's that's a good. Yeah, yeah, it it, it is. A, I think once I started slowing down and hiking with him, I saw so many things. Saw my first mink, my first bear in the woods, and I asked him. I said, you know, why didn't any of us ever see him? He goes, all of you are just like yakking a hundred miles an hour. 
you're scaring the bears. There's like eight or 10 of you young boys up there. You're scaring them all. And it's funny because when I got my fishing kayak several years ago and I started floating some of like the Holston French Broad, the French Broad at Seven Islands, um, they rent the boats. You can go up and rent kayaks to go down. I think it's great for families to do. But we'll go up early in the morning and float, and we really wouldn't talk. Right. You know, he's on one side of the river, I'm on the other, and we're floating. Deer, eagles. Uh, we saw a convention of buzzards. We counted about 100 buzzards up there one day. On, yeah, we there was a deer, but it had to be the time of year because there were so many. But we've seen otters up there. We saw a pack of coyotes. I mean, it was like eight coyotes in one pack. Right. You know, and I was like, I'd never seen a pack that big. I don't uh, think I have either. On the Holston one day, uh, we were pretty out there in the middle of uh, just, well, yeah, above um, Nance's Ferry. Look over behind Chris. He's 50 yards downstream or something, and he's waving, and I'm making my way over, and he's pointing. And there's a field, and I see this dog going through this field. As I get closer, I mean, he's walking kind of slow, and as I get closer, I realize that's not a dog. That is a huge tail. What is that? And it went over the hill, and uh, Chris said, Dude, that was a mountain lion. Because I did not get that close up like he did, the tail. You know, they have a very distinct tail. Yeah, they do. And it was bigger than a dog, but it wasn't a coyote because coyotes, it was a wrong color. It was that tawny color. Because we're out there and, you know, taking our time a little more, I guess, and not making a whole lot of noise, you just see a lot more. I do fish with one fella. His dad was a herpetologist. And the only time I don't like slowing down seeing more is with him. Because he sees every yes. rattlesnake and every copperhead in the world. Yes, see, I'm not interested in that at all. Um, I'd rather just pass by. <laughs> so your dad, it sounds like, taught you a whole lot of different things. It's amazing that how this stuff, you know, the hiking, you know, picking up the trash, picked up trash yesterday. Somebody, yesterday, somebody apparently got a bag of small candy bars and... I've changed the spot where I eat lunch on this particular river because it's more shady. And, of course, it was, you know, 6 million degrees. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I've kind of picked there. The gravel bars are honest. Honest to God, the gravel bars are a little bit cleaner as far as not as much vegetation. So I can get out and look and scan it for snakes. That's exact, That's one of the main reasons I stopped there <laughs> because it's clean still. Other than this, you know, these Milky Way, Baby Ruth, and then there's another one that has all almost its caramel and, and peanuts I can't remember the name of it. But anyway, these three rappers, I mean, somebody just sat there and it looked like they had, ate a whole bag of fun-sized candy bars yeah. and just left them there. So I'm like, I get out. The first thing I did was pick that up because I don't want anybody to have to sit there and look at somebody else's candy wrappers but while they're you oh, know, yeah. eating their eating their sandwich and their healthy fruit. That's another thing. We brought some healthy fruit yesterday. Uh, it, was a, it was a health health food fest. I say that kiddingly because we had some other stuff there that wasn't <laughs> healthy at all. But anyway, clean that up. So it's interesting. And when you're hiking, and of course we we all know this, pick up something and haul it out. Even even if it's not all the trash that you see, just pick something up and put it in your pocket or put it in your backpack or throw it in your boat. You got some garbage in your boat probably anyway. Throw it in there. and You don't have to go clean up the whole river every time you go. Oh, no, but try and leave it a little better than you found it. When you said you were going to talk about paddling, at first I thought, oh, no, this is going to be terrible. But <laughs> such good information, especially about reading the water. And, and those two, fly fishing and paddling go together, although we, we don't always agree on on everything. The connection with uh, the water when you're kayaking, and if you get proficient, I don't like to say good because I don't right. want to sound arrogant, but when you get proficient at being a kayaker, you really feel the water. You're in it. You feel it. You can use it. And when you stop, you lose that connection. 
you got to find something. And I think that's what a lot of us get out of it that go on to fly fish. We know the water. We know how it reacts. We like being in the water. Right. <laughs> we like being part of the water. Again, not just the water, but the stream side, the river environment itself. One of my best memories, interesting, you brought those two together, and that took me back to fishing at Teleco. When we moved into Middle Tennessee, a friend of mine said, hey, you want to go back to Teleco with me? And I love Teleco. I mean, I always have. Yeah. The first time I saw it, the roads were caked in about two inches of ice. Oh, wow. And we were going, you know, about 6,000 miles an hour. It seemed like way faster than we should have in my buddy's <laughs> truck, trying to make it up to Green Cove oh, yeah. so that we could make a phone call at the payphone and tell our wives that, hey, we're still we're still here and it's okay. So there's there's something to tell you. There's no, we had cell phones. There was really no, at that time, there's just no no service anywhere we were. Oh, yeah. I think we went from Citico over across the top on what was supposed to be a fire break over into Teleco and then up to Teleco to Green Green Cove. I used to love to go up there and fish. And my buddy in, in uh, Middle Tennessee said, Dave, you want to go to Teleco with me? And I said, yeah. So we planned this trip to Teleco. And like, all of us do. You plan a trip somewhere. It doesn't matter if 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 it rained for for eight days straight before you go to Teleco. I've got a trip planned and I'm going. So we get up there and it's the water is huge. I mean it is it is absolutely unbelievable how big it was. We ended up fishing North River and it was as small as that is. It was big. Wow. I mean it was it. I felt uncomfortable all, the whole weekend. But one thing that we did is we, we would put his camper at one of the little pull-offs there. Yeah. And now I think that pull-off is a day-use area. I don't. I think that's what it is. See that or it's a true camp camping place. But at the time, it was just a gravel pull-off, and we pull in there, set the camper up, and that was our home base for, you know, the three or four days we were going to be there. But that particular weekend, there was probably 30 kayakers. And they were all sharing that gravel pull-off. But they instead of camp, instead of campers, they had tents. Uh, and some of them were just sleeping on the ground in a sleeping bag on that gravel uh, with a little blow-up you know, thing. And self-inflatable was probably what it would be nowadays. And they would play in the water. I mean, they would just they would go up and down the river. You know, they'd go over Baby Falls. And we sat and watched. We watched them for hours. And they were having such a good time. And, and since they were camping there with us, we got to know them. And we ended up eating dinner together at night when they would come back in. We would come back in. Just a great group of guys. I don't know who any, who any of them are. They could be anybody that I, I could be in contact with every day and not know it because it was just a just a few days they were there and we were there. We did our thing. They did their thing. But that water was so big that we never we never were they were never they never came into the picture for us. I guess is what I'm. Oh yeah, to say. yeah. Mark, I uh, I think we went a long way. As I like to say, we was a long way around the barn, and we talked about a lot of things. We did, we did. Which, uh, which is part of what this is. I mean, you know, the the different influences. So let's talk about. Let's give us the name of those two books one more time. <clears throat> Kayak by William Neely, and that's just it. It's Mena- it was Menasha Ridge. I think they went out of business, but it's still pretty common. Used bookstores. Okay, end up with a lot of those. Kayak by William Neely. Um, especially for newer people, because it really is just paints a good picture of the right. water visually. And it, that's the cartoon. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I love that whole concept right there. Okay. And then the other one is The Squirt Book. The Squirt Book. S-Q-U-I-R-T. And Squirt is just a very small kayak. Right, okay. You have to see it to understand it. Those of us who have done it are nuts. So we're not talking about, before we get out of here, we're not talking about a book to go kayak, and we're talking about a book that's going to help you read water. 
like I say, they just really explained water, one in a very visual way and one in a mathematical way. Uh-huh. And I just got a lot out of both of those, especially with Neely, because he just, there's things, how do you describe how a wave works, how an eddy works? You know, what's the interface yeah. like? Yeah. And he does it in cartoon fashion or animated fashion. Right. It's it's really cool. Easy to understand. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you inviting us over here to the mobile studio here in, <laughs> in Knoxville, Tennessee, off of Cedar Bluff. It's, uh, it, this is like coming home in a way of, of we were we were driving over, my wife and I, she's out shopping, spending all what little bit of money I have. Uh, actually, she's the one that keeps me straight and sane, although I don't want to let her know that every day. But we were we lived over here for a couple of years, and this was really, it was tough to move away from here, and it really is nice to come back. And it's really nice to come back and fish, you know, especially the Smokies of where I spent so much time when I first really got back into fly fishing. And the clinch, you mentioned the clinch. Oh, yeah. I spent many, many hours standing in that cold water trying to catch a trout on a fly, and finally we figured that out. And now getting to come back here, it's been it's been a, a pleasure. Although, unfortunately, you told me Rafferty's is closed, closed down, and that is just and torn down, closed down, torn closed down, down, down and torn down. If I had been <laughs> so living sorry. here, that would not have happened. I promise you, I'd have, <laughs> we'd have had to work something out. And I just that that is crushing, and I know it's going to crush her because she's oh. really looking forward to it too. Yeah. But can you wait until I leave to tell her? Yeah, yeah, I'll tell her. <laughs> I don't know if it's better to tell her or just to drive over there and go, golly, it's gone. You know, I'm not <laughs> that sure that way, might be the best thing to do. That's probably the but best thing But she does to listen do. to these. So, uh, again, Mark, thank you so much for, for inviting us over and a good conversation. And I wish you well with Chota. What a, what a great company. And, and I've got some of your, your products, believe it or not. I know I haven't said that, but I do. And, and I've recommended. I've got friends that, that wear your, y'all's waiters as well. Uh, just a, a good southeastern company. Oh, thanks again, so much. We try. We try real hard. And, and again, that's you know that's what this is all about. Just the, the different influences of fo- folks in the southeast of where there's some really good fly fishing in the southeast, and sometimes that gets overlooked. Although I love the west, probably as much or more than anybody, this is a great place to be. Thanks for stopping by. I hope everybody's hung in there with us, and uh, look forward to uh, doing the next episode on southeastern fly, the angler's influence. <laughs>